and the Chairman, my dear brethren and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. In our last class, as Brother Axel has reminded us, we considered the commencement of the ministry of John the Baptist and we saw how it was the work of John the Baptist to prepare men's minds to receive the Messiah. This is pointed out to us in verse 3 of Matthew chapter 3. But the latter part of the verse we're told that he was the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And so John was sent for that particular work of preparing men's minds to receive the Messiah. In Luke chapter 3, Luke quotes Isaiah a little more fully. He adds to those words of Matthew in verse 5, Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be brought low. The crooked shall be made straight, and the rough way shall be made smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Now in that verse 6, Luke departs somewhat from the original words of Isaiah chapter 40, and verse 5. In Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 5 we're told that the glory of Yahweh shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. So Isaiah pointed out that the work of preparation to be fulfilled by John the Baptist would be a prelude to the glory of Yahweh being revealed and all flesh seeing it together. And of course we know that the glory of Yahweh was revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ. The moral character of the Father was manifested in him. And then as John tells us in John chapter 1 and verse 14, that we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And the Lord himself would say to to, uh, his disciples at a later time, He who has seen me hath seen the Father. So indeed in the Lord Jesus Christ there was a revealing of the glory of the Father. But also in that man was revealed the salvation of Yahweh. And so we see how Luke combines the two aspects there in verse 6 when he says that all flesh shall see the salvation of God. We saw in our last class how the preaching of John attracted much attention. People flocked out of the cities of Jerusalem and Judea, down into the depths of the Jordan Valley, going right down into that valley, that they might see and hear the words of John the Baptist. And there upon the banks of the river Jordan, at the very place, as Axel reminded us, where Joshua led Israel through that river into the land, there they found the prophet John the Baptist and listened to his words. Could there be a more appropriate place than the Jordan to which John could call the people? not only out into the wilderness, separating them from the involvements of this life, 
But there upon the banks of the river Jordan, the descender, that river that made its way from the Sea of Galilee, a freshwater sea full of life, down through the city Adam, down into the Dead Sea. The Jordan itself was a parable of mortal life. And how fitting when John uh, appeared from nowhere, preaching to the people, saying that all flesh is grass, and all the glory of the man is the flower of the field. How appropriate that he would stand there upon the banks of that river that in itself was a parable of the mortality of man. And when the people went out into that place, we read from verse 4 that they saw John with a raiment of camel's hair and a leathern girdle about his loins and his meat was locusts and wild honey. And as we saw in our last class, the garment of camel's hair was the characteristic garment of, the, of a prophet. And they recognised in John a prophet indeed. But we noticed that that raiment of camel's hair was girt about his loins with a leathern girdle. As the word literally means in the Greek, a girdle of skin. The girdle, of course, was what was used in ancient times to equip a person for action, girding up the long flowing roads so that a person was free for action. And here we see John clothed in the garment of a prophet, but girded for action with a girdle that spoke of sacrifice. An animal had to lose its life so that girdle of skin might gird, be girt around his loins. And so John was prepared for his work, he was equipped for his work by a sacrificial life which we see characteristic of that man. And we read in his meat was locusts and wild honey. And as we pointed out on those brief notes that we given to you. The locust was clean for food. In Leviticus chapter 11 and verse 12 you will find that the Jew was allowed to eat the locust, was counted as clean. We find the locusts used many times through the scriptures. We find them used as a symbol of judgment. We find for instance in the book of Joel the locust used as a symbol of the Babylonian power that was to come to execute the judgment of Yahweh upon that people. In Deuteronomy 28, one of the curses for disobedience to the law was that Yahweh would bring the locusts into the land and would strip their land bare. In Psalm 78 and verse 46, we read of how Yahweh used the locusts to punish his disobedient people. And so the locust not only was clean for food, but it stands in the word of God as a symbol of judgment. And likewise we see that combined with the locust was the food of wild honey. And honey again, of course, is a, a food which uh, figures prominently in Bible symbology. 
Psalm 119 and 100, verse 103. The psalmist speaks of how the word of Yahweh was sweeter unto him than honey. In, in Isaiah 7 and verse 14, it was predicted that the food of the Messiah would be butter and honey, that he might learn to discern the good and refuse the, refuse the evil. And we see in those places how honey is used as a symbol of the word. But of course honey is sweet to the taste and it represents the sweetness of the word. You know, as we look at the preaching of John, the message that he bore to the people, how that food that he ate was so typical of the message that he brought. You know, in the words of John there is combined the sweetness of the word with the uncompromising warning of judgment to come. And John's preaching was a beautiful blend of those two qualities. He uncompromisingly warned that generation of the fierce judgment that was to come upon them. But to those who would listen, he spoke the sweet things of the word of truth as he told them of the coming of the Messiah and the things to be accomplished through him. And John's word blends, John's preaching blends those two qualities beautifully together as we shall see as we come to consider his words this evening. John's words were bold and forthright. John's words were particularly applicable to the days in which he lived. If ever, brethren and sisters, there have been other days to which he's preaching is applicable. Surely it must be our own day. John preached just prior to the first advent of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are gathered here tonight just prior to the second advent of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're in very parallel times and circumstances to the circumstances in which John found himself. And if the words of John were applicable to his day, as they most certainly were, we believe those words are very applicable to our own circumstances also. And we will see as we consider the teaching of John the Baptist tonight, we will see how we live in very similar times. And the message of John is very applicable to us today. In the, in the uh, record of Matthew here, uh, verses uh, 4, 5 and 6 really relate to the subject matter that we considered at our last class. In verse 7 we read, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? In the parallel account in the third chapter of Luke, we find that Luke directs these words to the multitude in general. In verse 7 of Luke 3 we read, And he said to the multitude that came forth to be baptised of him, 
But from Matthew we learn that these words were directed at a particular class of that multitude. We will see from Luke in a few moments how Luke addressed other sections of the community with different words. But when he saw the religious leaders of his day coming out into the wilderness, down there into the Jordan Valley, coming to his baptism, we see John addressed them with the most courageous words. We can imagine how he would have looked steadfastly at those Sadducees and Pharisees standing there in all their self-righteousness and with the utmost courage he addressed them, O generation of vipers. A generation refers to the offspring or the brood of vipers. You know, there's no doubt whatever that what John really had in his mind as he addressed them, calling them the offspring of vipers. I don't believe there's any doubt that his mind went back to the third chapter of the book of Genesis. And John could clearly see that he was living on the very epoch of time when the drama of Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 was about to be enacted. You see, there in Genesis 3 verse 15 we read, I will put enmity, being spoken to the serpent, I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head but thou shalt bruise his heel. And there in that verse we read of the serpent and his seed. And John, as he saw the Pharisees and Sadducees coming out to him, looked steadfastly upon them. And he could see quite clearly from the very characteristics of their life that here was the seed of the serpent. Here were those who were in the grips of the serpent nature that they bore. And they were the offspring of the serpent. And he could see that he was living in the, on the very brink of that epoch when the drama of that 15th verse of Genesis chapter 3 was going to be enacted. When the seed of the serpent was going to reject and crucify the seed of the woman. And so you see, as John saw these things developing, he could see that bold, forthright words were what was needed. If anything at all was going to bring those men to their senses, it was these bold, courageous words that he spoke, which he hoped would take their minds back to the very beginning of, of, of the book of Genesis and would bring them to see that they were in actual fact the seed of the serpent that was going to fulfil that very prophecy. Now in the 23rd chapter of the book of Matthew, getting near the end of his ministry, the Lord Jesus Christ found it needful to speak to this class of people in the very same language. Matthew chapter 23, verses 32 and 33. Fill ye up then the measure of your fathers, Ye serpents, ye generation of vipers, 
how can you escape the damnation of hell? Very soon after that, that generation of vipers crucified the Lord Jesus Christ, bruising him upon the heel, but in turn, of course, reaped a bruise upon the head for themselves. And so we see that both John the Baptist and the Lord Jesus Christ addressed the religious leaders of that day in these uncompromising terms. And John called upon them as he identified them as the seed of the serpent. He called upon them to bring forth fruits, meat for repentance. A few individuals did. Nicodemus is a case to the point. Nicodemus was one who did bring forth fruits, meat for repentance. And so he escaped the wrath to come. But that generation as a whole brought forth their fruits all right, but they weren't fruits worthy of repentance, a complete change of mind and ways. The fruit that they produced was the bruising of the woman's seed upon the heel. And so he addresses them in that way. And he says, who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And in the symbology of the verse here, John has before his mind a brood of serpents or snakes fleeing from before the wilderness fire. But perhaps at times in his stay in the wilderness he'd actually seen that happen. And he sees these men now in the grips of the serpent nature that was in them, coming out to his baptism, like snakes trying to flee from the, from the rocks and the flames of the fire to come. And so in verse 8, he calls upon them, he says, Bring forth therefore fruits, meat for repentance. You see, to call to them to change their thinking, to change their ways, and to have that changed thinking and ways manifested in their way of life. That was what John called upon them to do. He said, look, you're the serpent's seed. You become the woman's seed. You listen to the message of the word of God. You let it change your thinking. You let that change of thinking manifest itself in a change of ways so that there might be seen in your life those fruits worthy of repentance. That's how to flee from the wrath to come. And so John called upon them to manifest that repentance. Then he said in verse 9, And think not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you, that God is able of these stones to raise up children under Abraham. You know, the Jews placed much confidence in the fact that Abraham was their father. In fact, the Jews believed that they were assured of a place in the kingdom of God because of the righteousness of their father Abraham. They thought they were assured of God's favour because they were Abraham's children. Now in the <coughs> argument with the Pharisees in John chapter 8, the Lord Jesus Christ 
uh, came up against this same problem. In John chapter 8 and in verse 39 we read, They answered and said unto him, Abraham is our father. But Jesus said unto them, If ye were Abraham's children, ye would do the works of Abraham. You see, and the Lord Jesus Christ was showing them that it required a little more than just being born a Jew to be one of Abraham's children. To be one of Abraham's children was to manifest the same disposition, the same faith, the same way of life as Abraham manifested. That was what makes a person a son of Abraham. But there, standing before John, were these self-righteous Pharisees, placing absolute confidence in the fact that they were the seed of Abraham and therefore they were assured of all the blessings that Yahweh had promised to bestow upon Abraham and his seed. You know, it's very easy for people to manifest a similar way of thinking today, particularly perhaps for young people that have grown up in the church. To put confidence in the fact, well, they've grown up in the ecclesia and therefore they're assured of all the blessings that Yahweh has promised. But you know, both John and the Lord Jesus Christ give a very strong warning against that attitude. The children are not assured of future blessings because of the righteousness of the parents. The children have to manifest that faith, that personal love for the things of the truth on an individual basis that Yahweh requires to see in all of his true children. And so the message of John to the Pharisees and Sadducees of that time is not without its application in our day and age we can delude ourselves upon the same basis. We can think that we come from a family of Christadelphians for generations back and therefore we're assured of the favour of Almighty God. But the favour of God is based upon our individual approach unto Him, our individual attitude to Him, our individual personal sacrifice that we're prepared to make to testify to the love that we have for him. You know, and the Lord, and, and, and John rather, added to that little warning. He says, God is able of these stones to raise up children under Abraham. What did he mean when he spoke in such a way to the Pharisees and the Sadducees gathered before him? We believe there's perhaps a greater depth of significance behind those words than appears upon the surface. Now we go back to Isaiah chapter 5 firstly. We follow one theme through upon the aspects of those stones. In Isaiah chapter 5 we have the parable of the vineyard. We have there set forth in the words of Isaiah the way that which Yahweh had established his people as his own 
personal vineyard. We read in verse 1, Now will I sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved touching his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard in a very fruitful hill. He fenced it and gathered out the stones thereof and planted it with the choicest vines and built a tower in the midst of it and made a winepress therein. And he looked that it should bring forth grapes and it brought forth wild grapes. You see, it's a parable of Yahweh bringing Israel out of Egypt and establishing them in their own land. And we're told of that land in the way that he prepared it to receive those people, that he fenced it and he gathered out the stones thereof. And there, of course, the stones represent the Gentiles that were previously in that land. The same principle comes before our attention in the 80th Psalm. Well, we have a very, or the same parable brought before us. The parable of Yahweh's vineyard. In Psalm 80 and verses 8 and 9 we read, Thou hast brought a vine out of Egypt, clearly a reference to the nation of Israel. Thou hast cast out the season and planted it. Thou preparest room before it and did cause it to take deep root and it filled the land. You see, in Isaiah we're told that he cast the stones out of it. In this time we're told that he cast the Gentiles or the nations out of it and planted that vine there. And so in those parables the stones represent the Gentiles. And as the people were gathered there in the wilderness, and there were stones just everywhere. There was representative of the Gentiles. Stones that were dead and unresponsive to the preaching of John at that particular time. And there were the Pharisees priding themselves that they were the children of Abraham and therefore assured of God's favour. You know, we go through the historical record of the scriptures back in down into the book of Acts. And what do we find? We find that the, <coughs> the Jewish people rejected the gospel message but Gentiles received it. And out of those Gentiles many sons and daughters were raised up as children unto Abraham. We read that in the third chapter of Galatians that as many of us have been baptised into Christ have put on Christ and if you be Christ then you're your, your, your uh, Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. There were Gentiles which were children of Abraham. While the Jewish people, the Jewish nation at large, was cast off at that particular time and, 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 and the nation was destroyed in AD 70. And so you see, there's an application of those words. God did rise up from the stones, the stones of the Gentiles, children under Abraham, when the true sons of Abraham were rejected because they were the seed of the serpent and bruised God's son upon the field. You know, we go back to the prophets once again. We look at the Zechariah chapter 7. And here we read words 
applicable to the nation of Israel. We read, Yea, they made their hearts as an adamant stone, lest they should hear the law and the words which Yahweh of armies hath sent in his spirit by the former prophets. Therefore came a great wrath from Yahweh of armies. You see, here the prophet Zechariah is telling us how the people of Israel, in verse 11, refused to hearken. They pulled away the shoulder. They stopped their ears. They refused to listen to the words. And so their hearts were like an adamant stone. They had a heart of stone within them. (coughs) You know, the prophets also tell us of the way in which Yahweh is going to change that heart of stone. He's ultimately going to take away that heart of stone. In Ezekiel chapter 36 and verse 26, for example, Ezekiel 11 and verse 19 says the same thing. But we look at Ezekiel chapter 36 and verse 26. Here we read of the time yet future when the Israel will be, will be restored under the Lord Jesus Christ. He says in verse 26, A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. You know, here we find in the writings of the prophets how Israel had a heart of stone and how Yahweh is going to take away that heart of stone before he can receive that nation back into divine favour. And here, the, here is John the Baptist speaking to the religious leaders of his day And he says, look, don't put confidence in the fact that you have Abraham for your father because it's written back in the prophets that the sons of Abraham, the natural descendants of Abraham, have got a heart of stone. And Yahweh's got to take away that heart of stone before they can be be, uh, brought back to divine favour under the Lord Jesus Christ. And so... There I believe in that verse also is an indication. John is indicating the words of the prophets in that regard. He's pointing out to them that they had a heart of stone and that heart of stone must be changed before they can become children under Abraham. You know, a stony heart is changed when the word of God enters in. When faith is developed in that heart. That's how Yahweh is going to take away the stony heart in the future. Because Israel then will hearken to the world and they will develop faith and love for the things of the truth within them. That will be the changed heart that Yahweh gives them. And you know, right there, at that very place where John was standing, that very place where John was baptising in the wilderness, that very place where Israel crossed the Jordan, we learn from the fourth chapter of the book of Joshua, there were some particular stones. We read in in, in Joshua chapter 4, reading from verse 19, 
And the people came up out of Jordan on the tenth day of the first month and encamped in Gilgal in the east border of Jericho. And those twelve stones which they took out of Jordan did Joshua pitch in Gilgal. He had previously placed twelve stones in the river where the priest's feet stood. Now stones are placed on the bank of the river being taken up out of the river. And he spake unto the children of Israel, saying, When your children shall ask their fathers in time to come, saying, What mean these stones? Then you shall let your children know, saying, Israel came over this Jordan on dry land. For Yahweh your Elohim dried up the waters of Jordan from before you until you were passed over, as Yahweh your Elohim did to the Red Sea, which he dried up from before us until we were gone over, that all the people of the earth might know the hand of Yahweh that is mighty, that ye might fear Yahweh your Elohim forever. Now there was a pile of stones on the bank of the Jordan, a testimony to the mighty hand with which Yahweh brought those people out of that wilderness through the river, into that land, and they stood there testifying to that, that they might stimulate faith in the hearts of their children of the generations to come. Faith that could take away the stony heart of Israel. And there, right at the very spot where John was speaking, was the very place where those stones had been placed to produce faith in the succeeding generations. And John was calling those people to repentance, to a change of thinking, and to a change of ways, to develop personal faith in the things of God, and in the things that he had promised, that they might change sides from being dominated by the serpent to be dominated by the word of truth, and so become the woman's seed. And that was a lesson that John had for the, for the religious leaders of his day. A lesson which comes down to us today as we stand upon the brink of the second advent of the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to remind ourselves that faith is a personal thing. It's the only thing that can change our hearts. The only thing that can cause that can from out of our stony hearts turn us into children under Abraham that we might be ready to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the vital, that was the vital need in John's day. It's the vital need for today for both young and old to develop personal faith, to develop personal love for the things of the truth. And that's something that can only be done by sacrificing time and effort to read, to listen to, to meditate upon the word of Yahweh. And unless we're prepared to do that personally, that faith and that love will never be developed in us to the full. And so in verse 10, having called the people to repentance, we find that John's words take an, a, an element of urgency now 
And now also the axe, he says, is laid under the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. The axe, he says, is laid under the root of the trees. It's a figure of a man with an axe in his hand and he's got that axe laid upon the root of the tree and he's ready to swing it back and to take a mighty blow into the root of that tree that he might bring it crashing down to the ground. The figure was one of urgency. The trees were about to be lopped. And you know, even at that very time when he spoke, the Romans were in that land. The Roman legions were marching up and down that land and had dominion over that land. And John's saying, well look, that's Yahweh's axe that he's going to use to hew down the fruitless Jewish tree. And the Romans were already there in the land. The matter was absolutely urgent. Every tree that did not produce fruit would be hewn down. You see, he doesn't just speak of the nation as one tree as we referred to it there in those notes. He refers to the trees. As if all the individuals that made up that nation were trees. And if an individual brought forth fruit, that tree would be spared. But every tree that did not bring forth fruit was going to be hewn down and cast into the fire. To save those trees was producing fruit pleading under the fire. There already in the land was the act, the Yahweh's act. There already in the land at that time the circumstances were building up that was going to lead to the fire of AD 70 when all the fruitless trees and the fruitless tree of of Judah would be hewn down and cast into that fire. So there's a tremendous urgency about John's words there as he pleads with those people to bring forth fruit worthy of repentance. It's so parallel with, with, with our own circumstances today. You know, we can look to the north and there's Russia built up to mighty military power in accordance with the words of the prophet. There's the rod of Yahweh's anger that he's going to use to discipline a godless world. We can look to Europe the circumstances are already there developing in Europe that are going to kindle Europe into a lake of fire. We look at the, the nations such as our own and here in this very nation at this time are developing those circumstances that are going to bring a fire upon those that dwell carelessly in the island. Time is short. The judgment is very close at hand. We too must bring forth fruit. Every tree that brings forth not fruit will be cast into that fire. And so just as there's an element of urgency about the matter in John's day, so there's that same element of urgency now. Time is short. Judgment is at hand. We must produce those fruits worthy of repentance. And so we pass from here over to the 
third chapter of the Gospel of Luke, where Luke gives us the details of, of, of John's teaching to other classes that came before him. In Luke chapter 9, we have the words that we've just looked at in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 10, concerning the axe being laid under the root of the tree. But here we see in verse 10 that the people come to him and they say, what shall we do then? They listened to his words. They heard his call for fruit to meet for repentance. They heard his warning that judgment was about to be poured out upon that nation if they did not bring forth the fruit. So they asked the question, what shall we do then? That was a question that was asked on other occasions also. We go to, um, to Acts chapter 2 and verse 37. And here on this occasion, the, the, the Jewish people, after listening to the preaching of the Apostle Peter on the day of Pentecost, having just been told by him that they'd rejected the Messiah of Israel. And we read in verse 37, Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their hearts and said unto Peter and to the rest of the Apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Exactly the same question that people previously had asked John the Baptist. What shall we do that we might prepare ourselves to escape the wrath to come? And we find that, that, that Luke, uh, John gives his answer as recorded in Luke verses uh, 11 to 14 and then he furthers his teaching in verses 16 and 17. But in verse 18 we read these words and many other things in his exhortation preached he unto the people. So that's something we need to bear in mind. That these little statements that we have here recorded of John the Baptist are only a very brief summary of what he actually said. Luke has just selected certain aspects of his teaching to set before us. But we're told there in verse 18 that he spoke many things in his exhortations as he preached unto the people. You know, the question, what shall we do then, is a question that had been answered previously. Now, it was a question that had been answered back in Micah chapter 6. And in the 6th chapter of the prophecy of Micah, in a single verse, in verse 8, we find really the prophet Micah answering that question. What shall we do then? Micah says in verse 8, He hath showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth Yahweh require of thee? But to do justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. And those three things were the things that Micah set before the people to do justly, to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God. And as we come to analyse the teaching that we have recorded of John the Baptist, we will see, I believe, that there is a great parallel between John's teaching and the teaching here of Micah in Micah chapter 6 and verse 8. What does Yahweh require of thee? Point number one, to do justly. The word justly in the Hebrew is the word mishpat, a word which, uh, in the way it's used here, according to Gentinius, means that which is right, just, 
and lawful. So he says, what does Yahweh require of thee? Point number one, to do that which is right, just and lawful. You know, what we're seeing in these words really is that the prophet is showing the practical application of the first and the greatest commandment. The first and the greatest commandment was thou shalt love Yahweh thy Elohim with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy strength. Now we love, we show that love for Yahweh in practical application by doing that which Yahweh considers is right and just and lawful. You know, we can't do what's right and just and lawful until we know what the will of Yahweh is. We've got to learn what Yahweh considers right and just and lawful. And that's the first point that John brings before us. The practical application of the first and greatest commandment. The second point that Micah makes is and do justly and to love mercy. To love mercy. And here of course is the practical application of the second commandment. Thou shalt love thy neighbour as thyself. And the Lord Jesus Christ said that upon those two commandments hang the whole of the law and the prophets. Love mercy. Be moved by a love of your neighbour as yourself. It's putting really personal wants and personal desires out of the picture and seeking the good of one another. That's loving mercy. And thirdly he says, thou shalt walk humbly with thy God. And there's the practical application of the knowledge of what we are and what Yahweh is person who has an accurate knowledge of what Yahweh is and an accurate knowledge of what we are ourselves is a person who will naturally walk humbly before their God. And John himself was an outstanding example of that very principle. In fact he was an outstanding example of all of those principles. But we need to get the the order right in which Micah has said it before us then. He says first do justice. First, we must know what is right in Yahweh's eyes. And until we do know what is right in Yahweh's eyes, we're not in a position to show mercy to our neighbour. We, we must elevate Yahweh's righteousness above human feeling. And so it's the knowledge of Yahweh's righteousness that comes first, the doing justice. And then, having achieved that, we're in a position to love mercy and to show compassion upon others. And finally, that knowledge must work in us to bring about a humble walk before our God. Now with those points in mind, we come to the third chapter of Luke. And we see how the teaching of Luke here is parallel really to the teaching of Micah in Micah chapter 5, 6 and verse 8. 
The first point that Micah made was to do justice. And in Luke chapter 3, verses 12 and 13, we read of publicans coming to, 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 Luke, to, to John to be baptised. Then came also publicans to be baptised and said unto him, Master, what shall we do? And he said unto them, Exact no more than that which is appointed to him. In other words, do justice. Don't seek your own profit at the expense of others. You see, the publicans were the tax gatherers. They worked for the Romans. They had to gather the taxes from the people and, and pass on the required tax to the Romans. But on often times it was the it was the practice of the tax gatherers to exact from the people much more than what they had to pass on to the Romans. So they might pay the Romans the, the, the uh, uh, due taxes, but they might keep a, 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 some in their own pocket for themselves. And, and, and John's words to them were to do justly, to do what's right, and don't oppress the people. We learn from the book of Proverbs, of course, that Yahweh um, loves a just balance. Now the second point that we saw from Micah was to love mercy. Now in verse 11 we read of the, his answer to the common people. He answered and said unto them, He that hath two coats, let him impart to him that hath none. He that hath meat, let him do likewise. So there's the principle of loving mercy, of thinking of those who are less fortunate, and of attending to their needs. There's the loving of mercy in practical application. And the third point that we saw from Micah was the walking humbly before thy God. And in verse 14 we read, the soldiers likewise demanded of him, saying, and what shall we do? And he said unto them, do violence to no man, neither accuse any falsely, and be content with your wages. Now the soldiers are a class of people who marched arrogantly up and down that land. They were a class of people who used their position to bully others and to exact out of others things to which they were not entitled, things for their own particular advantage. And they would use their position to do that. The word violence in that verse to the margin says put no man in fear. The word literally means to take one by the collar and shake him. And this was the manner of way in which the soldiers went up and down that land. They would take hold of people and threaten them and put them in fear that they might uh, receive bribes and money and all sorts of other advantages from them. But you see, John tells them They've got to stop walking in such an arrogant way. They've got to humble themselves before God. They must not put anybody in fear. They must not falsely accuse anybody. They must be content with their wages, with their allowance. And so he brings them before them the fact that they must walk humbly before their God. And so... In those things we see a summary of the teaching of John. 
that which is summarised, I believe, in Micah chapter 6 and verse 8. He called upon the people to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly before their God. Now in verse 15 we read, And as the people were in expectation, and all men mused in their hearts of John, whether he were the Christ or not. Now Brother Robert Roberts in the uh, workbook Nazareth Revisited, as we quoted there on the bottom of the note, he says on page 31 of Nazareth Revisited, it's a very brief quotation that we've made out of this paragraph, but it's a sentence to the point. He says, The time specified in Daniel 9 for the appearance of the Messiah was about to expire. And we learn from Josephus and Tacticus, uh, two, two uh, uh, historians contemporary with the time, he says, We learn from them that there was a general expectancy of Messiah's advent. This would tend to fix attention on John. This general suspense and anticipation would dispose the people to attend to a teacher so emphatic and peculiar. And so, Brother Robert Robert shows us there. But due to the nature of the times, knowing that the time periods of Daniel were about to expire, that the, the, the people were expecting the manifestation of the Messiah, and when John suddenly and unexpectedly appeared upon the scene with his bold, forthright message of preaching, people were musing in their hearts whether John were the Christ or not. In fact, in in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 19 to 27, we won't read all those verses, but we find there, in those verses, that the Pharisees and the Sadducees sent a deputation out into the world, out into the Jordan Valley, to ask John um, whether he was the Christ or not. Uh, we read, and this is in verse 19, this is the record of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who art thou? And he confessed and denied not. Uh, and he confessed and denied not, but confessed, I am not the Christ. I say, Well, are you Elias? He says, No, I am not Elias. He says, Are you that prophet? He said, No. I say, Well, who are you then? He says, I'm a voice. And so even the priests and the Levites sent out a deputation to find out from John whether he were the Christ or not. And this of course was arousing great attention to John throughout that land. And when the people asked him whether he were the Christ or not, we find in verse 16 John's answer to them. John answered saying unto them, All, I indeed baptise with water, but one mightier than I cometh, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to unloose. He shall baptise you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And so John denied that he was the Christ. He says, look, I indeed baptise you with water, but there's one coming after me who is mightier than I. And to emphasise how much mightier than he, we have a statement which shows John's own true humility. He says, One mightier than I cometh, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to unloose. Now it was the custom in those times, in the houses of the 
rich and influential anyway. So when the master of the house would arrive home from a day's work or journey, one of the humblest slaves in the house would meet him at the door, would bend down and would undo these, the cast of his shoes. And the words of Matthew in chapter 3 show that the slave would not only undo the, the latchet of the shoes, but after the master had stepped out of those shoes, he would pick the shoes up and he would carry them into the house, presumably, to the place where the shoes were kept. For the very menial task, and the humblest slave of the house would perform that service. And John the Baptist says, of the one coming after him, he says, look, I am not worthy to perform that humble task in my master's house. There was the humility of John. John recognised it as an undeserved privilege to be able to do any little service for he who is to be king over all the earth. Now when we look at the character of John, when we have the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ, there hadn't been a greater than John the Baptist, and we see his absolute humility, the absolute knowledge of his unworthiness. We see how he thought he thought it as an undeserved privilege to be able to do some little service in the house of his master. You know, what humility of mind should we manifest? You know, sometimes we think we're above doing little menial tasks. But that wasn't the attitude of John. John saw every little thing he could do for the service of his master as an undeserved privilege, as an honour of which he wasn't worthy to be able to offer that service to the one who is to be the king over all the earth. See, not only out of this verse do we find the humility of John, as he speaks of the one mightier than he that was to come. But you see, he speaks at the end of that verse. He says, He shall baptise you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. What does he mean, he shall baptise you with the Holy Spirit and with fire? When we go over to the book of Acts, we find that the apostles tell us certain things, um, Acts chapter 1 and verse 5 firstly. Here's the Lord Jesus Christ after he's risen from the dead speaking to his uh, uh, apostles and those gathered with him. He says in verse 5, For John truly baptised with water but ye shall be baptised with the Holy Spirit not many days hence. We know, of course, that not many days hence is the day of Pentecost when the gifts of the Holy Spirit were poured out upon the apostles. We go over to Acts chapter 11 and verse 16. Uh, we have here the words of Peter uh, speaking to the um, uh, brethren at Jerusalem concerning the baptism of Cornelius. Uh, uh, in verse 13 he speaks of, of, of how uh, 
Cornelius had sent for, for, for him. Verse 14, how it was outlined that Peter would be able to tell them words whereby thou and all thy house shall be saved. Verse 15, when Peter had arrived to tell them those words, he says, and as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, as on us at the beginning. Then remembered I the word of the Lord. How that he said, John indeed baptised with water, but ye shall be baptised with the Holy Spirit. So you see, there was the application. There was the outworking of those words spoken back there in uh, Matthew 3 and, and, and Luke chapter 3. And when the Apostle Peter saw the Holy Spirit poured out upon Cornelius, he remembered that it was said, John baptised with water, but I will baptise you with the Holy Spirit. And of course we need to remember that in the case of Cornelius, the Holy Spirit was placed upon him, but he still needed to be baptised in water. So the baptism of the Holy Spirit didn't in any way do away with water, but being baptised by water into the Lord Jesus Christ. But we see the application of those words at that time. They were baptised with the Holy Spirit. But the Lord Jesus Christ, or, or John rather, added that he would also baptise them with fire. And we find in the 14th chapter of the book of Acts, the apostles setting forth the principle that it is by much tribulation that we will enter into the kingdom of God. In the first of Peter, chapter 1 and verse 7, the apostle speaks of the trial of faith. He likens it under gold that he tried in the fire. In chapter 4 and verse 12 of that same epistle he says, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. And so those early ecclesias not only received the gift of the Holy Spirit, but they were also tried with fire. You know, the Spirit gifts are not available today. But we do have the completed Scriptures which are given to us by the Holy Spirit. And that word of truth is able to develop in us a disposition like the Lord Jesus Christ. It's able to develop in us that spirit of holiness. And that word is able to save us if that spirit of holiness is developed in us. But it will not be without trials and tribulations that are so necessary to purge and to purify the character. And so we see those words applied in that particular way. Indeed, the Lord Jesus Christ did baptise them with the Holy Spirit and with fire. But you know, as John, as the John was looking out upon the nation of Israel as it were gathered before him and he spoke those words to that nation, they had a very literal application to those people. He shall baptise you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. You see, those who prepared themselves and received the Lord Jesus Christ, as we have seen, received the gift of the Holy Spirit. They were baptised with the Holy Spirit. But you see, that nation at large that rejected his teaching was destroyed in the fire of AD 70. 
And that's what the, uh, uh, John goes on in verse 17 of this chapter. He says, Whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor, and will gather the wheat into his garner, but the chaff will he burn with unquenchable fire. You know, and here's the Lord Jesus Christ set before us. As a picture of, of uh, the husbandman thrashing out the wheat. He's on the thrashing floor. His fan is in his hand. That's the winnowing fan. The fan that was used to blow the chaff out from among the grain when there was no wind. And the thrashing floor was usually an elevated place. A place that caught the wind if there was any. And after having separated the wheat from the chaff with the thrashing instrument, they would throw it up into the air and the wind would blow through and blow the chaff out and the grain would come down and, and fall upon the ground again. And so the uh, husbandman would separate the wheat from the chaff. And that's a figure that John has got before him. He says, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah of Israel, is soon to be manifested in the midst of this nation and he's going to separate the wheat from the chaff. His fan is already in his hands. He'll thoroughly purge his floor. He'll gather the grain into the garner but the chaff will he burn with unquenchable fire. And out of his three and a half years' ministry, the Lord Jesus Christ gathered a little handful of grain. People who listened to his word, people who identified themselves with him, he gathered the grain into his garner. He gathered that out of that nation and he bestowed the gifts of the Holy Spirit upon those people. They were baptised with the Holy Spirit. But the chaff, that when it gets to that stage it will completely fulfilled its purpose and it's got no more use whatever, will be burnt with fire unquenchable. The Lord Jesus Christ separated out of his people and the rest of that nation which rejected him was destroyed in the fire of AD 70. It had fulfilled its purpose at that time and it was destroyed with that fire that was unquenchable. Fire that is unquenchable is fire that can't be put out. And when that judgement came it couldn't be stopped. That judgement built up and it came upon that nation and none could stop it. And the Jewish Jerusalem was destroyed, the Jewish people were dispersed and they were baptised in that sense with fire, the fire of judgment. You know, brethren and sisters, we stand in exactly the same situation as Israel stood in in the days of John. Very soon we will be taken to the judgment seat, the thrashing floor of the Lord Jesus Christ, that place where his ecclesia will be gathered before him, and he will sort out the wheat from the chaff. The wheat will be baptised with Holy Spirit nature, but the chaff will be burnt with unquenchable fire. The days were urgent in the days of John. John pleaded with those people to stand aside from the madness of the world to stand aside from the cares of this life and to bring forth fruit meet for repentance. 
that they might be ready to receive the Lord Jesus Christ and to be baptised of the Holy Spirit as they were in those days. The message comes down to us today, brethren and sisters, as we stand on the threshold of the judgment seat of the Lord Jesus Christ, to stand aside from the madness of this world, to separate from the world with the outside and within our midst, to separate from those things, to give our minds over to the influence of Yahweh's word, that personal faith, personal love for the things of the truth might be developed, that we might be found ready and waiting for the Lord Jesus Christ, that we might be among the weak, gathered into the garment and baptised with Holy Spirit nature.